So I kind of wanted to ask a question because it seemed like the Nets got all the guys that they were kind of gunning for. You know, they got mm. KD, they got Irving, they traded away Allen and Laverne, all those guys that, that had depth in that Nets for James Harden. And then somehow, some way, um, they go into this draft, get 27. They get a guy named uh, Cam, Cam, uh, what's, what's the last name? Cam, Cam uh, Thomas. Cam Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you might not know the guy. He, he was a five-star recruit. He was uh, one of the better shooting guards of the 2020, uh, 2020 draft class. And it, it's just so so crazy how this guy lands in the lap of the Brooklyn Nets, in a sense. And he, and I wanted to ask you, uh, could Cam, do you believe Cam Thomas could, could provide an immediate impact for this Nets team that doesn't have the full depth of, like, a full bench that, you know, we usually have seeing seen the Nets have in, in previous years? You know, they had a lot of uh, gritty role players in, like, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, and they had LaVerse, they had Dinwiddie's, they had all these different guys in the previous years. But it seems like now that is more of a KD, Kyrie, and a Harden show, can Cam Thomas kind of come in and take over the spots that were kind of – that? kind of take over that bench for that team. Yeah, you know, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see. I, I, I would have to word at that because when you look at the, the backcourt with the Nets or, yeah, the backcourt with the Nets have right now, they got Kyrie Harden, Patty Mills, Cam Thomas. It's getting a little crowded, right? And Patty Mills is I, – I don't – I would be shocked if he's not your second-string guard kind of filling in that Spencer Dinwiddie role, right? So, with Cam – when on draft night, when uh, when Cam was there, he spoke to us. Like, I, he got drafted. He was the last guy in the green room too, which was obviously you guys know what the green room is. It's multiple guys. It's mostly the invitees to the whole draft. So he was the last one there. And when when we talked to Sean Marks, the general manager after the draft, it was interesting because on TV, while well, I was there in person, but on TV, I was having people text me saying, "Hey, the Nets are literally just taking the best available player on the board every single pick." And with Cam, it makes sense because with the Nets, they're very offensive-based. That's how they run. They don't really think too much about defense. If you look at Sean and Steve, what they did last year, especially Sean, what he's done throughout his Nets tenure, he doesn't he values defense, but he always prioritizes offense, right? So Cam Thomas wasn't a surprising pick at all. Because with Cam, like you mentioned, he's Oak Hill. Obviously, you guys know what Oak Hill, high school. A lot of alumni, NBA players, overseas players came from there. He's their all-time leading scorer. At LSU, he's literally the most kind of – NBA-ready bucket getter, which we've seen in the summer league so far with 20-point games, coming off a of 31 yesterday and a game winner. So with Cam and when the Nets introduced him with Steve and Sean, uh, what was that, like two weeks, roughly two weeks ago, per se, the, Steve Nash even told us, he's like, hey, like, if he, he can contribute right away, but if he can't contribute right away because of whether it's the backcourt depth or just his play overall, we drafted these guys for long-term development, right? And that's a smart way they got to do because, like we mentioned, like we were just talking about with the Nets with the draft picks, they don't really have that luxury unless, hey, they could trade obviously down the line. But you don't have that in your back pocket saying, hey, next year we have a top twenty or hey, we're we're in the second round, whatever the case is, right? So with Cam, it's going to be interesting to see how he contributes. You know, he's one of those guys that, yeah, he's a bucket getter. His shot selection's a little you can debate that because obviously in college you had to do a lot. And with the Nets, he doesn't have to do so much. And we've seen what happened last year at the Nets, especially with role players having career years like Bruce Brown, Jeff Green. You just kind of just go down the list percentage-wise, effective field goal percentage. Really just any down any statistical category, all have had to have career highs because when, when you have KD, Kyrie, and Harden all on the floor, obviously Cam would be a little different in that situation. You get those open shots. So just to kind of just sum that whole thing up, I would just say Cam, like I do expect him to contribute. I do expect him probably to start off the season getting like five to 12 minutes, probably within the first roughly 20 games or so. 
And then after that, you can see it kind of just transform to see how that development goes overall. Going back to James Harden for a second, I think part of what makes this whole situation so fascinating, right, is as you said, like there were plenty of people who didn't want the Nets to make that trade. But I think it could have worked out better than they even expected because there were a lot of people saying like, okay, if you make this trade, like you have to win a championship. It's championship or bust. And I totally understand now that uh, Durant has signed that big contract, maybe, uh, you know, that uh, time window expands a little bit. But I think what made Harden so impressive for me last year, right, was that um, Brooklyn was like when they got him, okay, like we have three of the best players in the league, like it's all or nothing this season. But we saw Duran and Irving, like they had trouble staying healthy in the regular season. And James Harden really had these Nets playing at a nice level and maintaining that spot at the top of the East. And then in the playoffs, everyone's back, everyone's healthy. You all think it's good. And then Kyrie gets hurt. Harden himself gets hurt. And I remember vividly watching game four against the Bucks. Milwaukee's about to tie this series up 2-2. And I, I look around, I'm like, who are these guys? Like, besides um, Durant and uh, clearly not 100% Harden, like, they don't have enough guys on the floor that can make enough plays. And I think even though we look at the Harden trade now and say it was very successful, I think that kind of cost the Nets in the playoffs that without Irving and a healthy Harden, like, clearly James wasn't himself. Like, they need more guys. They need more players. And I think for me, as a – I'm a big college basketball guy. Like, I liked Cam Thomas's game a lot. I think you did a really good job describing his game at LSU. Like, he's a bucket getter. He can make shots, but sometimes – his shot selection is a little questionable. And I'm curious to see how that uh, role fits in for him. Like, does he play on the second unit? Do the Nets just see him as the eventual trade ship? With the addition of Patty Mills, with the guy like Cam Thomas, do you think Brooklyn has done enough upgrading around their big three? So if guys like Harden and Irving and, God forbid, Durant get hurt again, do you think they've done enough to at least elevate their team a little bit? I think most definitely. Because with, with, when, when free, before free agency even started at the end of the season, uh, they have like an end-of-season presser with all the like Sean Marks, Steve, they talk about the season when they got eliminated by the Bucks. Sean made it clear that, hey, they're just going to touch around the edges. They're not going to really kind of mess this thing up in his own words. So when you looked at it, right, it, they, their main two priorities were Blake Griffin and, and Jeff Green, right? That's, that, Sean Marks kind of just told that to us. He's like, hey, these are our top two priorities. These are the guys we want to sign, right? So they got Blake, and then obviously with Jeff Green, it was inevitable that, hey, he could leave because at the same time, he's been a lot of bet minimums and the Nets were very limited because they had the MMLE, which is like $5.7 million, and then they had the taxpayers, which was a little extra than that. And you saw what he got from the Nuggets. He got two years. I think it was a two-year 10 or 15. I forgot which one it was. It was a two-year 10, I think. So, and at the end of the day, hey, he's on a contending team as well. So, when they lost with Jeff, that's one of those versatile pieces that, hey, can you guard mostly one through five pretty well. You saw what he did last year, career year, worked very well with D'Antoni. Um, obviously friends with KD, playing in Seattle, grew up together. So, and then you just look at all their offseason moves, what they did is, when you just look at the draft too, they drafted one player in each position, right? So they drafted Cam, Dayron, Kessler Edwards, Marcus Zagorski, uh, and uh, Rayshon Gray, right? Obviously, Marcus and Rayshon are probably going to be Julie guys, right? They're probably going to get waived before, after training camp, signed straight Julie contracts. Kessler Edwards is kind of that mystery pick because I think Kessler can really contribute, especially at the five or be it kind of a stretch four. And then, like, you like kind of just go back to your question. I think they did enough because the thing was is when you look back at the Nets regular season, like you mentioned, hey, a lot of them got hurt. And those are one of those factors. Hey, in today's NBA, especially – you see this offseason this year, the length of this offseason compared to last season. It's very similar, right? And that, that's a very big catalyst towards injuries, especially soft tissue injuries. 
And then obviously you got the pandemic going on, contact tracing. Those are inevitable. Those cases are going to happen. But you know what? What the Nets, what the, their main priority was in the very beginning was, hey, just touch around the edges. Don't really mess this thing up. Make sure, hey, that we do get into if we the owner. When you have an owner that says, hey, I'm willing to dive into luxury tax and really pay big bucks. Like, for example, to give you guys a little perspective, I think their luxury tax bills close to, I think, 160, 150 million, somewhere right now. They're, the Nets set the record like a couple of years ago with 94 million. So then that was the all time record for luxury tax spending. So they really went into it and set records on it. But just overall, you know, like bringing a guy like Patty Mills, someone that's got a veteran IQ, already played with a big three in San Antonio with Duncan, Parker, Ginobili. And at the end of the day, he's a winner, he knows how to win. Um, and he's and he's mostly in the same role that he was with the Spurs when they were chasing a title, coming off that bench, providing that kind of scoring punch. And at the end of the day, like I said, the Nets always think offense. And when you look at the Nets and how they run, they run very based on their perimeter actions. So Patty Mills is one of those perimeter-based shooters that catch and shoot, and shoot off the dribble, be a spot up. So that works very well. And then you just look kind of down the depth side and stuff. You got to see how it's going to tune out with. Dayron Sharp, Kessler Edwards, those guys, which guys can get two ways, which ones not. The Nets uh, rescinded their qualifying offer of Reggie Perry, which was surprising. The Nets really don't really give up on their rookies that easily, but it looks like with Dayron, Kessler drafting them, they show, show more problems. But, hey, at the end of the day, they could sign him for a little less deal, vet, uh, like a minimum of some sort. But just overall, kind of just to really just sum up your question, I would say, hey, they, they did what they need to do, right? They need to just touch around the edges, don't really mess anything up and just keep them in the kind of that same space of, hey, let's end up as a one-two seed and kind of just pull up and go into the finals. There's a lot of hype going around the Lakers right now. And before mm-hmm. I came on this show, I listened to Public Enemy, Don't Believe the Hype. And I think it applies to L.A. right now. I call them Vet University. You know, they have a lot of guys like Russell Westbrook, Carmelo Anthony. I don't think Russell Westbrook fits with LeBron James, me personally, because of his ball-dominant style and obviously his shooting, his inefficiency when it comes to shooting. But guys like Kenny Smith thinks otherwise. He believed that their big three is going to mesh well, more well than the Brooklyn's big three. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts on it are like, hey, the Lakers roster is loaded, right? But the thing is, what we saw at the Nets this year is that no matter how talented your roster is, no matter how, who your big three is, or in their case, their big four, common history is everything, right? And the, the Lakers, the Nets have a year of that underneath their belts. They already have a year under the belts. Like we, we just talked about, they only touched around the edges of their roster for a reason, to keep that common history and have the roles kind of be in, to kind of uh, just spread out and be the same, really. So when you look at the Lakers' big three, you, or, well, I guess you could call it a big four with Melo, um, yes, they're old. Yes, they do have that common history. But at the same time, the good thing that they do have is that all these guys do want to win. That They right, they do they do want their first elusive championship. Look at Melo, you look at Westbrook. And you got other guys like I like the Malik Monk signing. I really think that was a good piece off the bench. Um, they got him at a good price as well. And there's just other little pieces that they got along the way that really fit well. But at the same time, you got when you really break down this Lakers roster, there's not a lot of defense. You know, there's not in a spot, especially in a Western Conference where it's a lot. You saw how much defense was valued, especially in the postseason with the Nuggets. And the Clippers, you just saw all those, hey, they got the firepower, but can they really go beat a team in a seven-game series with defense? And then you add that common history element on top of it. Because, like, if, if the Nets and Lakers hypothetically met, well, I wouldn't really call it hypothetically, it's favored, but if they met in the finals, I would have the Nets at six. Because just the common history, they know what they're doing. 
And with the Lakers, it's just going to be interesting to see how it all kind of plays out because at the same time, like what you mentioned with Russell Westbrook, he's very ball-dominant guard. His shooting doesn't really match what the, what the Lakers really need because at the same time, the Lakers don't necessarily have too many shooters outside of what? Melo, they, but they lost a good amount. Danny Green was an interesting case. And, you know, like, like that really, I just got to see them play together. That's how it was with Brooklyn this time last year as well. I was like, okay, I got to see them play together. Obviously, that wasn't when Harden came. But with Kyrie, with KD coming back, I was like, okay, KD, Kyrie, I could see that working out well. And then once Harden came along, I was like, okay, you heard the one, hey, there's only one ball. You know, you heard all those narratives. But once they started to click and everyone had that role and Harden served as that facilitator role, is Russ going to serve as that facilitator role for them? If that happens, hey, then they got a good shot. But if Russ is going to be looking for his own shots and kind of just being like very ball dominant, being perimeter shooting, then you look at other guys like Melo, I think he's going to adjust to his roles perfectly fine. LeBron's going to be LeBron. And then yeah, I think a lot of it's just going to be dictated on Russ, right? I think it's just going to see how he kind of adjusts his game as the point guard. If he's going to be the floor general and just be a main facilitator and, hey, at the same time drop 15, 14, close to 19 a game, that's fine. But his shot selection is a big thing because obviously you've seen – his pastures with the Rockets and Thunder, once he shoots the ball and it's not going in, he keeps going for that. He's not like one of those guys that's like, okay, I missed two threes, let me drive to the basket, get get some momentum going. He keeps shooting, and then, hey, once that quarter ends or he gets subbed out, then he starts attacking the lane. So he's going to be a big kind of uh, momentum setter for the Lakers, but it'll just be interesting to see how it turns out. Like I said, I, I have to just see them all play together before I get like a clear judgment of what's going to go on. So. But I do like their moves overall. I do like what they did. I have a question amongst about the Brooklyn Nets um, big three, you know, because we didn't get to see them on the court for such a long time. You know, this season, upcoming season will be 82 games. And, you know, KD only played, like, I believe, 36 games that season. So we didn't get to, get to see a full glimpse of how they would look for a full season. But I'm kind of wanted to get your input on if you are worried that they'll be able to stay healthy amongst a lot of a grittier Eastern Conference, you know, with Miami Heat adding a bunch of defenders in that team. And then the Milwaukee Bucks, the defending champions, played a lot of gritty defense as well. Like, how do you – do you believe that health could be a big factor of what the Nets do this season? Most definitely, most definitely. Because with the Nets, it's – well, we saw what they did last year, right? We were, we were talking about it a little bit. And then this year as well, it's going to be interesting to see how they handle KD, how they handle Kyrie. Harden, Harden's more of a – like kind of a unique case because if you look at his career, he's been the most durable player in the NBA the past couple seasons, right? So that hamstring, you call it a fluke. You kind of call it a kind of happened, but at the same time, it's nothing really – okay, it's not going to linger. But at the same time, hey, he did play with a great two uh, strain on it in the playoffs and stuff. So you don't know how that's going to linger by training camp and see how that starts. So I think they're, they're going to be cautious. With KD, like during the regular season, they didn't have him playing a lot of second legs of back-to-backs. With Kyrie, they kind of, hey, he had some personal absences and stuff, but he also did have some load managing on the shoulder too. So you made great points because obviously Miami, they loaded up different defenders. That's arguably one of the most talented defending teams in the NBA right now. And with Milwaukee, they play very physical. We see what happened. Obviously with P.J. Tucker, I think that is a big loss. And I don't think they really patched that. But with obviously with Giannis, he does bring a lot of physicality. We saw kind of what happened in that Celtics series and that Bucks series. A lot of physicality. It was mostly a, a game of physicality. Whoever kind of get that edge gets the runs. Because at the end of the day, basketball is a game of runs. But that physicality factor really played the uh, differential in that. But just overall, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see. I think with KD, I'll be surprised if they have any heavy restrictions on him this year, because towards the in the Olympics we saw how many minutes he played. 
And I think that's at the same time, hey, like it, obviously the NBA teams, maybe the Nets didn't like that that much, that, hey, he's playing 40, 42 minutes, 43 minutes, whatever the case is. Same thing at the end of the season with the Bucks in game seven and six. He played almost all the minutes. He probably had like, what, 30, 40 seconds of rest and then another game he had two minutes, right? So I doubt they have any restrictions on him. But, you know, that's that's just the, the game that they play, right? I guess you could just sum it that way, right? Injuries happen. They're unavoidable. Obviously, it's, it's one of those things that, hey, if the, if the Nets' big three were healthy the, the, uh, in the postseason this year with the Bucks against the Bucks, hey, you know, they could have probably won the whole thing. And um, it would just kind of just be interesting. You know, with injuries, it's one of those things you just got to monitor. You just can't hope for. And every team's kind of in that same situation about. And um, and just, I'm just, what I'm most interested to see, I guess, on a broader, spec, uh, broader scale, this is the Olympic players, right? Because they're going from playing the Olympics, such as Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, Devin Booker, those guys. They did a full season. Then they did the Olympics. Then they have just about a rough month off before training camp starts in, like, September 20-something, like the 20s. So, I would say just overall, you know, injuries, something you got to prepare for. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. It's like contact tracing. And you just got to hope it just doesn't happen, you know? Uh, Lil, any, any more for our guy, Chris, or are we good to go? Yeah, I got one more question. One more question yeah. here. I'm not one to count anybody's pockets. We live in America. Money is printed on a daily. But um, you see a lot of these mid-level players that are turning down great deals and end up with less money. You see yeah. Spencer Dinwiddie, he wanted a five-year, $125 million contract extension with the Nets. He ended up getting a three-year deal, $60 million, to go with the Wizards over there. Um, his situation is different. I believe he never wanted to play for Brooklyn anymore. Once James Harden and Kyrie Irving came there, that's my opinion. I don't have the facts to back that up, but I didn't think he wanted to be there. You have other guys like Dennis Schroeder, who turned down the Lakers $84 million deal, ended up signing a one-year $5 million deal, $5.9 million deal. You also have Victor Oladipo, who rejected a four-year $113 million extension with the Pacers and ended up with the – Bare minimum, the one-year vet minimum with the Miami Heat. So who do you blame in a situation like Dennis Shooter? Do you think it's the greediness or do you think it's the agent saying that you could get more money elsewhere? Who do you blame in a situation like this? Because this is ridiculous. Money is money at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, in the NBA, you know, it's one of those – the NBA is the – I guess you could say the professional sports leagues where ego really is a big factor, right? It's not like baseball. It's not kind of football is kind of like, Hey, it's a mixture, but NBA is one of those things. It's very individual sport based, right? Especially when you think about how many players are on a team and salary cap situations. But at the end of the day, it's a little mixture of everything, right? Cause obviously with agents, they have to tell them the fair market price. Cause obviously you saw this free agent market. It was not the, it wasn't the most glamorous free agent market. Right. But at the same time, there's a lot of players each, I guess you could say, positional market that dictated the market, such as, for example, Kyle Lowry dictated the point guard market, right? So if Kyle Lowry, was, if the sign trade to Miami didn't happen, could he have went to Philadelphia? Other teams were waiting on that to make their next move. It was kind of like playing chess, right? One move goes, then the next, then the next move goes, right? And you look at guys like Dennis Schroeder, Spencer Dinwiddie, um, Victor Oladipo, because with Victor Oladipo, it's one of those things that's – he was injured, right? That's, that plays a big part of it. And at the second time, too, is that a lot of these teams could find those guys for cheaper prices that fit more organically. It's not just about, hey, they're a star talented player, right? Because you look at Victor, for example, hey, he's a good all-around player. Obviously, his offensive game kind of got a lot of spectrum, but his defense is somewhat still valuable. At the same time, he's one of those guys that need to show a little consistency health-wise and play-wise, right? And then you look at Spencer Dimley, for example – 
I know Spencer had a little feeling he wanted to come back, but because, hey, he went on Howard Beck's podcast, and he said, hey, give me five-year 125, and we can come back. Well, if you knew the money situation, it just wasn't going to happen, right? And it was inevitable that he was going to get a signing trade. And because um, Sean Mark said it from the very beginning, he's like, hey, whatever, it's in Spencer's hands. Wherever he wants to go, we can make it happen, right? And um, and Schroeder's situations, it's one of those, it's, it's kind of like one of those rare situations you see once every three years, right? The one player demands a lot of money coming off what he believes was, hey, a very good year in his eyes, which it was in his, when you look at the career stats, but he also got to base it off everything in that positional market. So you look at Schroeder, obviously he turned down 84, is a four year, 84 million from Lake or something like that. Yeah. And now he's at, now he's at the Celtics now one year, five, four, I think five, three. Um, so it's one of those things that, Hey, it's, it's going to be in his consciousness down the, down the rest of his career. He's like, Hey, I could have been in LA with a team that had championship aspirations, a team that I already had common history with. Now I'm going literally to their, their historic rival on the other side of the coast for one year, 5 million. So he's really got to play on himself. Then you look at other guys that kind of like bet on themselves. I like that, that like say, say Bruce Brown, for example. Right. So Bruce Brown was one of those guys who were like, he could command. He was thinking he command uh, eight to twelve, right? Eight to twelve million a year. But the thing with Bruce Brown is he had such a unique role with the Nets as that kind of pin roller, screener, small ball center, not a shooter, just a hustle guy, energy guy. That 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 play can't really fit into another system, just like that. You know, it's more of a kind of a crafted role just around the supporting pieces. So that's why he didn't get a big deal. That's why he went with the qualifying offer. Yeah, he, he said that he had bigger deals and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, you're going to, like, if you're a player, you're going to get more spotlight if you're on a championship contending team, no matter what your role is. Yeah, you may have average less points, or, hey, you could score more points if you're on another team. But at the end of the day, is that the big thing about the NBA is the Stars League, and teams want to see how you play alongside Stars, especially if you're not a star, because you've got to catch those holes or build around what the Nets did, touch around the edges of the big three. That's why Patty Mills got good money. That's why um, you just kind of just look, just look across the league and just see what kind of happened with the Heat and everything. So, you know, it's it's interesting. It's like I said, it was one of those free agent markets. Like you look at Kawhi, for example. I didn't really like what Kawhi did. But what Kawhi did is he held out on a new deal and he really put the Clippers in a tough spot because a lot of players look at where stars go. Like you look for the Clippers, for example. Reggie Jackson resigned right after Kawhi Leonard resigned. Same with other like key pieces. Kawhi signed a little earlier, knowing that hey, he was going to stay there there would have been probably a little more pieces that could have gone. But that's just hypothetically speaking. You never know how it works out. But, you know, overall, like I said, this free agent class was just very it was very dictated just based on the top point guard, see where it goes, and they just play chess from there. Same really with all the positions. Chris, we wanted to say once again, thank you so much for joining us today on In the Huddle. He is Chris Melhonen of Nets Daily. Once again, have a great weekend. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. No problem. And you need anything from me, just let me know.